Let's get started with Hebrews chapter 5 then. Hebrews chapter 5 from verse 1 to 4. Can you read for us, Sami? Okay, Hebrews chapter 5 from verse 1 to 4. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, thank you. So what the writer is doing here is that he's introducing us to some of the qualifications of a high priest because the, the efficacy of the rest that we have in God um, is made powerful, right, by the high priest that we have who has passed through the heavens. Like I said, this is a continuation of how he ended Hebrews chapter 4. So we have to look at it very quickly, right, that seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, the heavens here is, whenever the, whenever the scriptures use the heavens in plural here, the original Greek translates actually to the, to the created order. So everything that is atmospheric and beyond the atmosphere. So if you have a telescope, for example, and you, like you can peep and see and see the stars and see the galaxies and see the faraway planet, depending on the power of the telescope that you have, right? And in a sense, in our biggest scientific efforts, our, our highest goal is to, is to contact unreached planets, right? And to go to the moon and to, and to practically explore everything that is part of the visible creation. What the writer is saying here that everything that is in the heavens is, is still part of the visible creation, is still measured into time and space. As long as you can use a telescope and look at it, it is still part of this measured layer of existence. He's saying that the high priest we have is Jesus. He passed through the heavens. So Jesus did not just go into space. He, he, he was just passing by meaning that the place that he operates is not so much um, the heavens as in it is up there. Because if you take a telescope and look, if you have tried, you will not see the throne of God. It means that the place he operates is in a different dimension. So heaven, that's because heaven is in a different dimension, heaven can be in your heart. Heaven can be can be all around you and it can also be very far away because it's not so much about our human concept of time and space it is a reality that is beyond time and space right it's a reality that is not restricted or constrained by your physical location by your ability to go to the highest points of the created order <laughs> he he has passed through the heavens and that is significant because when you begin to come to Jesus, you don't need to um, you don't need to book a flight on Blue Origin, right? To to try to access the heavenlies, you can you can come to Him right in the privacy of your heart. That is how efficacious His priesthood is. 
It's a priesthood that is built on, on a quality of life that allows you access resources that are not visible to the physical eyes. He has passed through the heavens. He has, he has gone beyond the limitation of the created order. So it's a mistake for you to, to, to constrain your life to the resources of the created order. You can find resources from a different layer of experience. Remember we said last week that even though the book of Hebrews has a lot of rebuke in the book, and you're going to see why it has all of that, the book is also practically about confidence. The writer wants you to know that the provision that God has made is not one to turn your back on. So he says we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens and he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, this is where the problem comes in for you and I, right? Our weaknesses. Because we can talk about rest and how we are we're created to trust in God, to depend on God. But you see, at the foundation of life, at the very fundamental of life is the principle of sin. And that is what has introduced misery and weakness into this creation. We are more prone to be independent. We are more prone to be selfish. We are, we are more prone to lie, actually, than we are to trust in God. Right? We are more prone to be, to be slaves of anxiety. We are more prone to be, to, be, to be driven more by pressure. I don't know if you watch football and you see some teams like Nigeria that only wake up when, when they are like two goals down. That's when <laughs> suddenly it's as though they now want to play. You know, as if pressure is like a driving force right, for, for things to happen. It is in our human nature for that to happen. And it is possible for you to look at your human nature and then look at this invitation to come to the throne of grace and then conclude that, hmm, you know what, I'm actually just human. So um, I can, you know, like I don't need to press to enter any rest. Everything that I'm doing is just, is just how I was created to be. Thank God that he loves me. Thank God that the throne of grace is there. Let's just be going like that. We're going to see that continuing like that puts one in danger of, of becoming dull of hearing, which is actually what started happening to some of, these, some of these Hebrews. But the writer says that the high priest that we have, he can sympathize with our weaknesses, but yet he's without sin. I'm just raising this early question so that we can put them together as we go along. How is he able to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet he was without sin? I don't know if you have ever been, been, been tempted before. Temptation was on your neck for whatever it is, right, that the temptation was, whether it is temptation to lie or to look at what you're not supposed to look at. Have, I don't know if you have ever come under that kind of incredible pressure. Or maybe it's not even that you, you came under incredible pressure. Things just happened that spontaneously, you didn't even have the time to think. Like the first reaction was just anger or the first reaction was just in the flesh. I don't know if it has ever occurred to you, if that ever happened to you like that, right? And you might be wondering, how, how can my high priest relate to, to this weakness, right? How is it possible that one can live from rest? Or maybe it is the case that sickness may have, is, is coming into your body and it is shaking the foundation of your body and your body is weak. You can't even sing, you can't even pray. And you're asking yourself, how? <laughs> Can somebody in such a condition enter rest? 
or find rest in God. The writer insists that even though our high priest was without sin, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And in chapter 5, he shows us how he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And, and that leads us to the, to the first question then for today for interaction, right? Why do we need a high priest? And I think another way to phrase that question is, who is a high priest? What is the work of a high priest? Because this high priest can be very Christianese, you know, Bible language that we just keep hearing it and we, in our subconscious, we think we know what it means and why we need a high priest. Who is a high priest and why do we need one? Or even a priest for that matter, <laughs> before we talk about high priest. Well, if I'm to um, uh, say from my own little understanding, the priest is, from context of cultural um, um, definition, the priest is one who um, spearheads um, or is a bridge between the people and the deity they worship, if I put it that way. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a good metaphor, right? A, a priest is one who bridges the gap, right? A, a priest is one who stands between the seen and the unseen realm. You know, if we use the analogy of like um, everyday life, before we go into the spiritualities of who a priest is, I want you to see that because we said that man cannot operate outside of rest, right? Outside of dependence on the work of another, it's necessary for us to show you how this um, plays out practically. Now, in each of our lives, there are certain things that we cannot see. And when I say we cannot see, I mean with our physical eyes or with our intellectual eyes, right? For example, if you are sick, something is happening, but <laughs> you cannot detect what is going wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And what happens is that you need to go to a priest. In that, and when I say a priest, I mean a doctor. So the doctor is playing the role of a priest. The, the doctor is standing between you and what you cannot see and interfacing. And you know, it's necessary, it's, it's necessary that when you go to the doctor and say, see, I'm having these symptoms, it's actually for your benefit that the doctor can diagnose it and judge it in that sense correctly, right? And tell you that this thing is malaria. I know that in our very spiritual environment, we want, <laughs> you may think that, no, the doctor shouldn't find anything in me, but it's actually for your benefit because imagine if you are sick, you, you are not going to be sick in Jesus' name, but imagine if you are really sick really, really sick. All of us have been really, really sick before. You're having symptoms and you go to the hospital and the doctor tells you that everything is fine with you. And you are not going to be in any kind of useful psychological state to be able to battle the sickness because what you want is for someone who can relate to your sickness, who can identify it, who can name it and begin to administer treatment. <laughs> That's what you want. And if you cannot find that person, oh, that's a sad existence. Imagine that you do not have a priest or in this analogy, a medical practitioner who can relate, who can understand, right? And in every sphere of life, we, we encounter this, this need for a middleman, starting from a very natural and physical definition of who a priest is, one who stands between the seen and the unseen. And we have said that in the gospel, God is concerned with the foundations of our lives. And we have seen that 
the the fundamental reason why we cannot walk in rest is because of the miseries of sin we are we are predisposed to weakness we are we are predisposed to anxiety to 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 fearful fretting you know like suddenly you just see somebody who is better than you at something and then you become intimidated and it begins to shape it begins to shape your reaction or suddenly a man or a woman utters a word a government decrees a thing and then you begin to fret that's our natural disposition or maybe if you're like the disciples right you're in the boat and suddenly the storm comes and then <laughs> your life story flashes in front of you and you become convinced that kai this is the end but you see in the midst of that boat <laughs> there is there's one who is not as 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 disturbed as you one who has learned that anxiety is not the way of life it is through the way of rest and so that's what we need we need we need someone who can relate to our weaknesses but yet be compassionate in the midst of our weaknesses and that's what the concept of a high priest is and speaking from the old testament which is where the writer is speaking from the high priest was ordained by God. So the first qualification of the high priest is that the high priest needs to be taken from among men. Right? Taken from among men. So the high priest needs to be one of us. He needs to be someone that can relate to our weaknesses. But even though he's taken from us, the high priest needs to be separated from us in things pertaining to God. Now, of course, in the context of this verse, he's referring to the high priest, which is Aaron in the Old Testament but Christ in contrast in the New Testament. But like you know, in the New Covenant, all of us are priests. You are a priest unto God. And because you are a priest, you can stand in the gap for families, for peoples, for territories. You can become the conduit between heaven, which is unseen, and earth, which is seen. You can become that channel of grace from heaven to earth. And the way God makes his priests is that he selects them from among men, meaning that they begin with the same weaknesses, with the same shortcomings, with the same history as every other man. <laughs> but, then he's, but then he separates them also. So it means that in your life, in my life, God will come to you with instructions that indicate separation. This is a bit of a digression, but it's necessary to say this because we're still going to come to Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, where we really examine the priesthood. But this is just a digression for now. That God is going to come to you with specifics about your life. And he's going to come to you with, with things that make sense for everybody else. But he will tell you this thing. Be careful with it. And suddenly, you cannot explain to people why, why you don't watch certain movies. You know, you, you cannot open a scripture and show them. But the thing is that every priest that God calls, he calls them from among men, but he also separates them for himself. Right? And the goal of a priest is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The biggest threat to our rest in God is our sinful nature and the sinful acts that proceed as a result of that sinful nature. And because of that, we need a high priest. And so we see in verse 2, just an explication of that, that he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and those who are lost going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Now, you know that he's trying to compare, he's trying to show us that Christ is sufficient to be our high priest, that 
there is nothing that you're going through that Jesus does not understand, that Jesus has not been through, that Jesus cannot bring you rest in the midst of. It might be painful, it might be horrible, but if you fix your eyes on Jesus, there is rest in him from that situation. So he says he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. The question then is how is, how is or was Christ subject to weakness? Because you might think, hmm, Jesus doesn't really understand my problem. You know, he, he, he was born of a virgin and he was born without sin, but me, and you might be correct, you are correct when you say that I was, I was, I was conceived in sin. Right. Okay, verse 3 says, because of this, he's required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sin. And then verse 4 says, no man takes his honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So he's saying that there's no ceremony you can do to appoint a priest. You know that there is, you know that, I mean, there is no need to use metaphors like the Catholics and many Orthodox Christian sects believe that um, that there is some kind of priesthood that still exists between men and God. But Hebrews chapter 5 is one of the clearest scriptures that indicates that there is only one priest. There are many scriptures. There's only one high priest. And that high priest is called by God. Man cannot ordain a priest. If you look at, if you go to Leviticus chapter 8, which is when the priesthood was inaugurated, the first thing you will notice is that the Lord said, the Lord said, Moses did not wake up with a with an impression that he should he should he should begin a priestly order. It was the Lord that introduced it into Israel's civilization. It says no man takes this honor to himself. It's an honorable thing to stand for God in the lives of people, to stand to represent God in a home, in a city, in a nation, right? And for that matter, to be the greatest high priest of all. It says no man takes this honor to himself. In, in the midst of this explication of what it means to be a high priest, you may have noticed that the writer has also revealed to us some limitations of the priestly order that was pioneered by Aaron. Of course, it was from God, but it had some limitations, which was why eventually it had to be done away with. So one of the limitations, for example, is in verse 3, that the person offering, <laughs> offering sacrifices, he needed to start from himself. Right, so meaning that he was not, he was not a perfect priest. It, it was, it was always a transient arrangement. It was not an arrangement that was meant to, to, um, to go on forever, and that has practical implications because you know if I'm your pastor and then you come to me, and you say, oh, I'm struggling <laughs> with X Y Z or whatever it is, right, and then in my own life I've not known the power of victory in X Y Z. You know, it is, it is possible that I will not be able to administer faith and grace sufficient for you to find victory because I've not known it. My own weaknesses have become a burden so that everyone who is under my priesthood, as it were, and who um, comes to me for help, right, will be practically limited by my own limitations, right? So that is one of the clear limitations of the priesthood that was of the priesthood of the ironic priesthood, the priesthood that was based on men. The writer is showing us this contrast, these qualifications, because he wants to then present the priesthood of Christ 
as a sufficient answer for a problem of sin. Okay? Is it clear why we need a priest? A priest? Yeah, very clear for me. <laughs> okay. This, this topic is going to be even much clearer when we look at the entire priesthood. You are going to see why God made you and I kings and priests. Okay? There is a priesthood assignment that we have towards each other. But how effectively we can undertake that priesthood depends on our angulation to the high priest. Right? There, there, is, there is blood and oil business in priesthood like you'll find in Leviticus. But we'll get to that subsequently. So, Sammy, can you read for us from verse 5 to verse 11? Verse 5. So, also, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and who was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Okay, thank you. So if you notice here, and if you've read to the end of the chapter already by yourself, you'll see that what the writer wanted to do was to contrast the priesthood of Aaron with that of Christ and to show how superior the priesthood of Christ is, right? Remember from chapter 3, he said that Christ is the apostle and the high priest of our salvation. And he compared Christ to the previous apostles, to the previous sent ones, Moses and Joshua, and showed how their calling was insufficient and incomplete and, and left us without doubt that Christ is the only means to the permanent rest that was promised in the Old Testament. But because God instituted this entire priestly order, it was necessary for him to also compare the priesthood of Christ with the priesthood of Aaron. And he was saying, actually, his intention was to say that, which he will pick up on in chapter 7, was to say, was to say that the priesthood of Christ was from a different order. It was from the order of Melchizedek. He said, we have so much to say, but there's a problem, there's a challenge. And it is because of that challenge that he then digresses, and that's what we have as um, the rest of chapter 5, right, and chapter 6. And that challenge is a challenge of immaturity, the challenge of the people who have stopped growing. We're going to see that. But it's what we can do with what we have in front of us is to look at how Christ compares with that ironic priesthood in this very basic form. So we've seen some of the requirements of a priest, right? That the priest must be like one of us, yet separated from us. And that a priest cannot appoint himself and that man cannot appoint a priest. It, it's, a, it's a sovereign appointment. Only God can make it, um, can do it. 
And that's what verse 5 begins with. So also, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So one thing you can see already that is different from, that differentiates the priesthood of Christ from the priesthood of Aaron is that it is based on sonship, right? Which we saw a bit in chapter one, that because it is based on sonship, the, the kind of salvation that Christ came to pioneer is a salvation that is built around sonship. Every priest that follows after the order of Christ can experience the riches and the reality of sonship. You are my son, today I've begotten you. So Christ has fulfilled that, that number four criteria that no man takes this honor to himself, right? That God appointed him. And he quotes Psalm 2 verse 7 here when he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. But like, like Moses taught the Hebrews, by two or three witnesses is any truth established. So he also quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that scripture, and at some point he said, you are a priest forever. Now, this is another limitation of the priesthood of Aaron that I, even if Aaron somehow managed to be effective, right? Just as you might have a favorite man of God who is very effective in bringing you in bringing you the resources of heaven and the priest and the priesthood riches of heaven and the weakness of an earthly priesthood is that it ends at some point aaron died at some point and everybody who inherited the priesthood also died it means that just in, in case the priesthood was blessing your life in death there was nothing to run to but for christ it says you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Anyway, verse 5 and 6 are pointing to his appointment that Christ did not take upon himself the glory of priesthood. So he fulfills that first requirement of priesthood that it was God himself who appointed him to be the mediator for sin between man and God. But then we know that, okay, he came in the flesh, so he qualifies again as one who's taken right from among us so we know that christ was like us <laughs> but then the question is how does he fulfill verse 2 he says he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness remember in verse 4 he told us that christ was without sin so how is it that he was without sin yet subject to weakness and he gives us a clue here. He says, who in the days of his life, of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, was heard because of his godly fear. So you see, you catch a glimpse here that when we say entering God's rest, it does not, it does not mean that there is no labor. It's just a different kind of labor because this looks to me like labor. He, he offered up prayers and supplications. In fact, the, the prayers were intense with vehement cries and tears because he, 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 because he trusted that, that, that death cannot be my, my end. You will not suffer my soul to, you will not suffer my body to see corruption. You will not abandon my soul in hell. Because of that promise, he offered vehement cries and tears and was heard because of his godly fear. And then he says, though he was a son, 
yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So my question to us, I would like us to interact with this a little bit. What's, what's going on here? How does this satisfy the requirement of Christ, right, as one who understands our weaknesses? At what point did he offer our prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears? How did one who was perfect in his nature learn obedience? Because it's, it's necessary for us to understand that what Christ went through in order to become our high priest, so that when pressure comes on our soul, of which it will come, the pressure to give in, to compromise, to settle for something less than the promise of God, we will remember our great high priest. So can someone help us? What's going on here? I think at the Garden of Gethsemane, that's the one that comes to mind. When Jesus was in agony and he was like, um, if it be, you know, if it be possible, let this cup pass over. And they said, the Bible actually says that he cried and his tears were like drops of blood. So I think that's one of the, that's the one I can actually point to. Yeah, that's actually very accurate. You took us straight to the answer. You see, what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane was very, very significant, right? Because if you read all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, you know, the Messiah was this man in history that was supposed to come and do all the will of God. It was supposed to look so easy. You know, he loves doing God's will. Um, he went to the wilderness, he overcame Satan, he defeated the temptations, and then it was the cross. It was a small deal for him, and he just went there. There's no place <laughs> except Isaiah chapter 53, which is a scripture that the Jews still today struggle with to, to align with their vision of the Messiah. There's no place that indicates that he had a battle of the will. What was happening in Gethsemane was that Jesus had the choice to walk away. He was under intense pressure. You know, after Satan had tempted him at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, the Bible says that Satan left him for a while. And it is in the nature of Satan that he waits for the moment of weakness, right? He waits for the moment of vulnerability. And when we look at Hebrews 7, 8, 9, you're going to see that that's one of the reasons why God made us priests. Because in your capacity as priest, you can, you can cover your brother in a moment of weakness. You can cover your sister in a moment of weakness. The, the arrangement is supposed to make us impregnable if we understand the efficacy of our priesthood. So Satan waited for him until that moment when the cross was facing him. You know, <laughs> I don't know, like, like some people, I don't know if, if you are like, like some people, but some people believe that they can pray all the prayers that they need to sustain themselves by themselves. So they never ask people for prayer. But you realize that in Gethsemane, Jesus said, can you watch with me? <laughs> he knew that what he was going to face it was temptation at its deepest. It was, it was the thing that makes us sinful. I don't know if you have been there before where, when the will of God is A, but everything in your body, in your mind, in your soul is pointing towards B. And the way you are seeing yourself, you are going to end up in B. That was Gethsemane. Friends, Jesus would not have, have, have sweated onto blood if, if it was not if it was not going to be catastrophe, if he didn't do that. 
right? In Gethsemane, the weaknesses of his humanity was on full display. It was in Gethsemane that he understood what it means to be one of us. So just in case you are, you are a Christian and you are struggling with something, contending with the will of God, well, the first thing to know is that Jesus understands. Right? And even if you make the mistake a thousand times, he still understands. But the second thing to know is that Jesus overcame and that there is strength, there is wisdom, there is capacity in him to bear you through that weakness, to bear you through it. The Bible says that he offered vehement Christ. In fact, he invited his disciples to watch with him and every one hour he was checking, like, can you not, can you not watch and pray with me? And he says, the way I'm seeing this night, this night going, you need to pray so that you don't fall into temptation. But of course, we know that they didn't end up praying because they had sorrow of heart and we saw how it ended. But Jesus knew better. He knew that he had access to the Father. He knew that if, if only he tarried in prayer, strength will come. Strength will come. You know, the strength to overcome temptation, the strength, right, to walk in the counsel of God, to go beyond the limitations of your humanity, to find hope in your weakest moment. That strength is domiciled in Christ. If only we can come to him and lay hold of him. In Gethsemane, Jesus understood intimately and perfectly what it means to be one of us, what it means to be tempted to break him point. But the Bible says that he overcame. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered, through the things he suffered, so that the suffering that he went through was one of the building blocks of his, of his sonship. The same way the suffering that you and I go through is supposed to be the building block of our maturity in God. And the point here is to say that do not let your suffering be wasted. Friends, there's going to be seasons of suffering in our lives. And this is not a, a negative prophecy. There, if, we, if, we, if we decide to look back in your life, there have been seasons of suffering in your life. There have been seasons where you know, things did not go as, as smoothly as you expected. You did not pray one time and the thing left. Those moments are moments to learn obedience, to learn surrender, to learn intimacy, to come in more into the fullness of your sonship in God. The Bible says that though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And because he suffered and he learned obedience, of course, he learned obedience refers to the fact that he ended up taking up the cross because he was saying that this thing is not my will. But as he suffered through prayer, you know, as he, you know, like in your Christian work, there are times when you don't want to do it. And that's fine. There are, there are times when you're like, God, I know this is what you said, but as I'm here now, there's no energy, there's no strength, there's no X, Y, Z. Right? But don't end like that. Don't end like that. He learned obedience. You and I, two friends, can learn obedience if we allow ourselves to embrace the circumstances that God places around us, if we allow him to deal with us. You know, I've always used the example, right, of someone that wants to get rid 
of okay maybe we should use the example of someone that wants to get rid of lying right you know god is going to place you in in the context where <laughs> you are going to need to lie and then you, you are now going to not have to lie so that you can learn obedience you know when you tell the truth kai it will punch to puncture your pride and you'll be sorrowful for three days but out of that puncturing a beauty is emerging simeon prophesied to mary that for you to for you to be the mother of jesus a sword will pierce your heart and the thoughts of many will be revealed to you yes jesus can ask you to go and apologize <laughs> And you know that if you do it, you look very foolish because when you were doing the thing that you now need to apologize for, you were very arrogant and confident and snobby about it. And now you are going to go and say sorry. And it's actually possible <laughs> that after you say sorry, you will look very foolish for one week. And you know, it's possible that when you, when you see that suffering, you decide, Kai, no, no, it's too much. And you go away. But he learned obedience. Friends, obedience is learned. The way of Christ is learned. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You see, if you're going to learn of Christ, he's going to need to give you a yoke. And the idea of a yoke is that you are yoked together with him. So it's actually his burden. If it was not because of him, you wouldn't need to do it. And the fact that you are yoked together also positively means that his energy is, is available to supply the strength for it. You know, you might be dealing with your tendency to snap and react when somebody says something, and then you now start asking for help, and then God will now put you in context where you are being triggered every second. Yeah. The Bible says that he learned obedience through the things he suffered. You can tell somebody something and the person completely misquotes you and renders your reputation in tatters and God says, just, just be quiet and love them and pray for them. <laughs> you don't know suffering if you have not done that. <laughs> suffering can be intensely emotional as much as it can be intensely physical. Yes, I know. I know. I know because my own twin sisters have suffered physically from sickness suffered physically from sickness but her testimony did not change not for one minute we saw god do many miracles heal mightily but that sickness never left but her conf her confidence her confession it never changed not for one second and today she's way better off for it the bible says that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered and because he submitted himself to that process he became perfected. He became the author of eternal salvation. This is so rich, right? I don't know if you know what it means for him to become the author of salvation, for him to become the pioneer of salvation. And he doesn't just call it salvation, he calls it eternal salvation. Eternal doesn't necessarily mean forever, forever, even though that's part of what it means. It means everlasting. But eternal refers to a quality of salvation, right? A quality that the old priesthood did not have is that it was not based on the power of an eternal life. Eternal life is the very life of God, the thing that makes God pure and holy and powerful. That very nature is deposited in you and I. 
And because God is everlasting, you and I get to inherit that. What he's saying is that when we see Christ, we see the scope of our race. He has uttered it. Somebody who has uttered something has started it and finished it. He, he started as a baby born in a womb, just like you and I. And today he's a man in the heavens, living and reigning forever and ever and ever. And the writer is saying that when you see Christ, he has already done it. He has, he has made the pathway. What he has become is what you and I can become. You know, as Christ is sin is not his problem anymore. Sickness is not his problem anymore. Doing the will of God is not his problem anymore. He has found rest. He has found rest. Right. And even on earth, he still found rest from many of those things. So what he uttered for us was eternal salvation. He became the author of salvation. He was called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. The, the, the order of the Melchizedek priesthood is one that is based on the power of an endless life, the power of an immortal life, meaning that we are people who look ordinary, but we have an extraordinary life inside of us. And it is a shame that when we have problems, <laughs> we don't beckon on the extraordinary life. You know, we try to figure it out with our imagination, with our wisdom. We don't latch on to the extraordinary life. But that is the order of priesthood that Christ has come to pioneer. He says, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Now, this is where he begins to digress, but I would like to hear your thoughts so far. Is it, is it clear? Any, any thoughts or questions? Yeah, I must say it's clear. Um, one, one thing that came to mind when you were talking about the priest who, who understands our weaknesses is, you know, give the example you gave of the doctor. Mm -hmm. If you look at every instance of a priest, um, for that priest to be able to properly diagnose our circumstance, they have to also know what it's like. So, for example, when you're telling the doctor you're having stomach pain, it's not something that is alien to him. He has been mm -hmm. through stomach pain. It's not just something he studied in school and said, okay, this is stomach pain. And he knows, he feels, he has felt it. If you're telling the doctor about sore throat, you know, he knows about it. Let me even say something as mundane as a mechanic. You understand? <laughs> a mechanic who is some sort of priest as well. When you're explaining the, so, so, you know, the sound or whatever it is you have to do, sometimes we may not even have the technical or full capacity to explain. We can just say something as mundane as, I was hearing one cri 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 sound. <laughs> on that and the mechanic knows, you understand? Because yeah. he, has, he has been in that situation. He knows what that sound is. So even as mundane as the language you're using to explain it is, the person knows whatever console. Um, it, it, that was one thing that resonated with me very well. So when we are talking about, you know, confessing these are our infirmities before the Lord, you know, especially in prayer, in supplication, he knows, like you said, even no matter how many times we mention it, he's not something that's strange to him. Yes. Thank you very much, Sami. Um, I just want us to take three minutes. I know that we're not done because we only have a few verses left, three or five minutes. 
I want us to come to our great high priest with that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. Can you just come to him, right? I don't know what it is that is your struggle. The fact that it has not gone should not make you restless. It should rather make you trust him more that he knows. And that this thing shall go one day. Whether in life or in death, it will go. Anybody who takes that stand always finds freedom. I just want us to, to call upon him. To, to call upon our great high priest. Yes, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you because you are worthy of everything. Yes, thank you that you did not shy away from the cross. And because you bore it, you have set a pattern for us. Tonight, we ask that you strengthen us, oh God. Strengthen us to take our journey, God. Strengthen us. Strengthen us to take our journeys in you, Jesus. Strengthen us to be a people that respond in faith, that lay hold of everything that you have for us, precious Jesus. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Okay. So now the writer shows us in the final three verses, part of why he wrote this book. So it's not just that he wanted to um, warn them of the dangers of drifting. In these final verses, we see that actually what was happening is that is that the drifting among these Hebrews had already led to some departures. And he's going to um, pick on like pick up on that more in chapter six, which is to say that what happens if someone hears all of this, right? Someone hears that we have a great high priest and the person also hears that there is, <laughs> there is suffering on our path, that it's not as though <laughs> on the path of transformation, everything is, is all smooth, that Jesus himself endured suffering. He lent obedience through suffering because it's possible that someone may be a Christian but may never have heard it and thank God for a compassionate high priest, right? Who's going to have compassion on that one. But it's possible that someone may have heard it and decided that, you know what, this is not my thing. I'm just happy to come to the throne of grace every day and say, I'm sorry. Or, you know, like the way I heard some people in Nigeria say it now, they, they have stopped confessing their sins. And what they do is that, <laughs> is that they confess their righteousness. You know, so... When they, when they sin against God, rather than confess the sin, they confess I'm the righteousness of God. And that's all. Of course, nobody's saying that you shouldn't confess the righteousness of God. But make sure to always complete that statement. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. In Christ. But that statement is not a replacement for the confession of sin. But the question he's, he's dealing with, right, is what happens when we don't go on to maturity? Right? When we don't challenge ourselves, when we don't lay hold. Because what began as drifting, remember, from chapter 2, that he says, let us take it to the things that we have heard, lest, lest, we, lest we begin to drift from them. It became doubting in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And by doubting, we mean unbelief. Because unbelief, like we said, is something that grows out of repeatedly hearing, but not committing to do and so if someone continues in that state the next 
stage of the decline is that they become dull of hearing. So there's nothing you want to say that they have not heard before. You know, someone described, of course, it's not anything against American Christians, but this was way back in the 70s or so. Describe American Christians as people that don't want to hear anything that they're not used to, right? They just want to hear the things that they've been hearing and say amen and whistle and shout, right? It's not a question of what you are hearing. It's a question of how you affect, allowing it to affect your heart. Of course, hearing is a gateway into that. But the next slope down that path is that it's possible that one can become dull of hearing. And if you look around in, your, in Nigeria, because in Nigeria, we unfortunately have many examples of this. You'll see many people that become dull of hearing. If you want to tell them about God, they have heard about it. But somehow something has been lost. So Sammy, can you read the last three verses for us? Verse 12 to 14. Okay, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. <laughs> Thank you. So we can already see some very important points, right, about maturity. That if you want to test your maturity, if you want to test your maturity, or if we want to test your maturity, we need to look at your understanding of the word of righteousness. And by the word of righteousness, he means the word that produces righteousness, right? The word that produces righteous conduct. Because God welcomes all of us into his kingdom as babes. There is none of us that does not begin as babe. And there's nothing wrong in beginning as a babe. In First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter said, as newborn babes, desire the milk of the word, the sincere milk of the, God, of the word, <laughs> not so that you can keep drinking it every day, forever, forever, but so you can grow thereby. You have possibilities. It is, it is good for a newborn baby to be drinking milk. It's very good. It's necessary. In fact, there's none of us that actually stops drinking milk. It's just that our dependence on it reduces as we go on to higher things. And the baby is so cute when they are drinking the milk, right? But if after five years they're still only drinking milk, then it becomes a burden, right? So we see here, right, that one of the markers of Christian maturity is, or perhaps as, as far as the writer of Hebrews is concerned, the core marker of Christian authority, uh, maturity is conduct. It doesn't matter if somebody's doing miracles, right? Miracles are not a mark of maturity, even though in some sect sectors in Nigeria, we have, we, like we make it think that if someone can move in power, the person is super mature. The Bible never says that. What the Bible tells us is that God gives gifts graciously. And, and, the, and the gift can be given to Judas Iscariot, and Judas Iscariot can cast out devils, because that is the story of the 70 and the 12 that Jesus sent before the 70. Even though Judas Iscariot had no true convictions, like we've seen before. Right? So check out their understanding, their appropriation of the word of righteousness. What fruit has it produced in their lives? Because some people 
can only deal with the entry point of the word of righteousness, right? The entry point of the word of righteousness is what Jesus said. Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we said last week that that rest is a rest from the works of the law. That he's saying that your righteousness is on me. It's like as though you want to start a business and I give you credit. So now you can go and do the actual business and forget about the money, right? That's what righteousness is. It's, it's a credit. You know, we looked at it in the book of Romans. Or get to my, it's, it's imputed. It's not, it's not imparted. That's why you can be a Christian and be dwelling in sin because this is not imparted righteousness. Nobody lays hands on you and you become righteous. It is imputed, it's credited, it's a, it's a, it's a legal terminology, right? And in the book of 1 John chapter 2, when John was giving us his own division of layers of maturity, he says, I, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven. And that is fine. All of us begin there. And there is a sense in which all of us will always need the forgiveness of sins. We never outgrow it. But for some people, that becomes the center and the circumference of their experience. So that the word of righteousness they hold on to is the word that you know, convicts them of their righteousness in Christ, but does not convict them of their outward conduct of righteousness. But there are also some other people who hold the other extreme right and as far as the writer of hebrews is concerned that is also immaturity that they have no understanding of the entry point of righteousness of the righteousness that is by faith and all they are doing is trying to establish a righteousness that is by works you know i once lived with someone all possible details withheld so that there's no way to trace this but i once lived with someone who was attending a particular denomination in nigeria and <laughs> My friend came back from the, from the meetings every day with heavy condemnation on his spirit. Heavy condemnation on his spirit. And as someone who was living with this person, I know that if we're talking about external conduct, this person is better than 99% of the people that are calling themselves Christians. But the person could not even bring himself to pray. Because after he has heard a certain kind of message, he does not even want to approach God again because it is a righteousness that is advanced by performance. And, and so you can see how difficult it is to actually stand in the middle and to hold the balance, right? That I'm made righteous by faith in Christ, but there is an expectation. There are good works that were prepared for me. And, and, I, and I want to walk in them. I was, I'm not saved by good works but I'm saved for good works. And God has put it in me to walk in good works. The same way that God has put it in that baby that is drinking milk today. God has put it in the baby to one day chew strong meat. And so it's necessary, right, that the baby goes on to maturity. And then we see some of the... <laughs> I call them like the tools of maturity, the instruments of maturity. And the most important one, the most important instrument of maturity is the food that you are eating. We don't have time to explain how important food is, but you know that. But let me just try a little bit, not so much, but a little bit. You know that 
the physical food you eat affects your soul and your spirit. Even though the food is not entering your soul and your spirit. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if you've heard the word hungry before, which is a mix of hungry and angry. That somebody's problem is that the person is not eating. <laughs> but some emotional and spiritual expressions are beginning to come out of that condition, such as anger and frustration. And then once, once I don't, maybe you have even experienced this, once food enters your stomach, then that's why eating is so central to God's plan for man. It's so central that a big part of, um, or rather a significant part of the sacraments that Jesus recommends that we keep is the Lord's table. So significant that the end of the age will be com commemorated by, by, by a supper because there is a relationship between physical food and emotional and spiritual well-being. It's necessary, right? Even Jesus in his resurrected body, we don't have time to press this topic, but in his resurrected body, he ate food. So the same way that physical food, right, can affect spiritual and emotional well-being, although quite, you know, very in a very little way, because the more food you eat, the less it affects <laughs> your spirit and your soul, but it does have an impact. In the same way, spiritual food can sustain your body. It can, it can power your will and make you the type of person that can resist temptation and make you the, the kind of person that can bear the cross. Spiritual food. You know, when God says that we need to labor to enter rest, part of what it means is that we need to eat. We need to eat. We need to eat. We need to just be eating. Because the promise is that is that by the anointing, and by the anointing there means by fatness, many yokes break. There's, there's a level of stature you get to that you just walk away from certain things. Just be eating. When Elijah in 1 Kings 19 was, was discouraged to the core, God brought him angel's bread. Because the man needed rest. He needed to find rest in God. And there was no way he would have found that rest in God without hearing the voice of God. And there was no way that he was going to hear the voice of God, except if he traveled 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Right. And so God brought him the first dose of bread, the second dose of bread. Our maturity, friends, is tied to the food that we eat. And then our maturity is also tied by the exercise of our senses. The Christian who is going to mature, who is going to grow, is the one who exercises themselves unto godliness. That's what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Right? That bodily exercise is profitable. Yes, it has some profit, but spiritual exercise, right? Godliness, is pro it, it, has, it has a promise that if you exercise yourself in godliness, Exercise yourself in prayer, in fasting, in Bible study, in fellowship, in evangelism. If you exercise yourself, there's a promise. There's a promise. You and I don't even know what that promise looks like. Maybe for you, the promise is that you are going to be the next Billy Graham of our generation if you exercise yourself. But there's a promise. And it says that promise is not just an earthly promise that fades with time. It says it has promised both now <laughs> and in the life to come, meaning that the capacity you have built into your spirit now has a role to play in the age to come. Right. 
So he says that this, these people have experienced stunted spiritual growth. He says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. You know, we said earlier that one of the ways that Christ learned obedience was that he embraced suffering. And we're trying to answer the question, what happens if you don't embrace suffering? You know, I, I once heard the story of, of, a, of a teacher or rather of a school owner or principal who was looking to fill a big, a big role in their school. And then they appointed a teacher who had 10 years experience to fill the role. And then, the, and then one of the teachers in the school that had 25 years experience came and queried the principal or the owner and said, how is it that I'm here and you promoted this person? I have 25 years experience and he, he or she has 10 years experience. And the owner said to her that <laughs> you don't have 25 years experience. You have one year's experience 25 times, right? <laughs> that's, that's what it means not to go on to maturity. It means that God may not be able to commit souls to you. You are going to see Christians in bondage and you are going to be weak to say, no, I've seen this one before. I have, I have, I've contended with Satan on this floor before and it should not end like this. You, you, you can also find victory. Your priesthood will not be effective. And that's my prayer for us tonight, right? That we will find encouragement in our high priest. We will find strength in our high priest. That we will not arrive at a place where we trust so much in ourselves that when we fail, <laughs> we are not able to come back to him. But that also we will not embrace failure to the point that we are not able to look up and say, Lord, you conquered. You overcame and you made it so therefore i will also overcome and make it but that jesus will be our reference point that he will be our focus that he will be our reason that he will be our strength and everything that he asks of us to do that we will locate the strength in him to do it and so that practically we can say like paul i can do all things through christ who strengthens me in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.